Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. It's not easy for adults to understand the complexity of the coronavirus pandemic, much less a child. The Emory Global Health Institute was determined to help young children understand why life suddenly changed because of the virus. The Institute sponsored a competition for authors and illustrators to write a children's story, and the winning ebook is COVID-19 Helpers. We'll hear more about it later this hour. The Plaza Theater responded to life during pandemic with the creative solution of reviving the drive-in movie experience. And speaking of movies, there are a number of films set in the South that are appealing for their colorful characters who both embody as well as defy stereotypes. Forrest Gump and Cookie's Fortune are just two that come to mind. The newest entry is Second Samuel. Wayne Patterson directed the movie. He joins us now with two of the featured actors, E. Roger Mitchell and Bethany Ann Lind. Welcome to City Lights. Thank, Thank you. you very much, Ms. Lois. Well, the film is such a delight to watch. Let's start with a brief synopsis of Second Samuel. Wayne, would you like to do the honors? Sure. Second Samuel is a small town in southern Georgia and takes place in 1949 and is mainly the conversation of a young autistic boy in the town telling stories to Harry Truman through a pen pal relationship. And uh, these stories remind Harry of the, the small town nature that he brought was brought up in Missouri and uh, become a delight until the piano teacher dies and some secrets come out and it tosses that little town into some consternation, that's for sure. Oh, yes. Now, this is your first film and you had a huge career change. What sparked that big move? It was uh, it was permission from my wife, first of all. <laughs> that would be the number one thing. But it, it was the, finally the, the realization that at 52 years old, nobody was knocking down my door to direct a film, and that if I was going to do it, I was just going to have to make it happen. And so I was able to form the right partnerships and get the right people helping people like uh, Joan Karpolis and, and Sherry Lipscomb, and as well as Mark Brown, who is a, a regular first AD there in Atlanta. And he brought on some people. And then these two people that are on with us just were magnanimous. I can't believe how, how we were able to attract these two talented individuals. Well, I have to cheer them on because the, your roles were just wonderful. Although, Bethany, I think it's the first time I've seen you play someone less than kind. <laughs> so much less than kind. 
Oh, yes, she ever, but it definitely went against type. Bethany, I should have asked you to explain the title because you do such a lovely job of it as (laughs) Jimmy Deanne. Yes, let me see if I can remember that monologue from two years ago. (laughs) Oh, goodness. (laughs) No, yeah, as, as I recall, the town was called Samuel and it burned down. Was it during the Civil War? Yeah. Yes, Sherman. Sherman comes through, right? That guy. Yes. Yes, and burns the town down, and they build it back up again, and now it's called Second Samuel. <laughs> now, Wayne, why did you want to adapt the play Second Samuel to film? Well, I had directed the play for our community theater several years ago and established a relationship with Miss Pamela Parker, who is the playwright and is a resident of Peachtree City there in Georgia. This story goes with everything I believe that the Southern culture should be. You know, we, we tend to grow up in this area and forget that we're raised to love our neighbors and we are raised to be able to treat people a certain way. And we get into these small cliques and forget that everybody we encounter is the neighbor. And, and it just becomes so important to tell that message in a way that reminds us. I think, I think one of the, the film critics said it gently opens the door wide. And so that's what we were trying to accomplish. You mentioned that the film is narrated by a developmentally challenged, you said autistic young man. Yes. B-flat, well, in 1949, autism would have gone undiagnosed. Right. So mentally challenged is the way they would have phrased it. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Sweet, wise young man, Bernard Flat, also known as B-flat to the town. Why do you think it was important to the playwright that B-flat should be the narrator? You know, I don't know what was originally in Pamela Parker's mind, but that innocence, that wisdom, it just comes through. It, it comes through in a soft, kind-hearted way without, without pointing a finger or, or degrading someone else. And I, I'm not sure that any other character would have had that ability. Miss Harriet Orrin, Miss Gertrude passed away. You remember her, right? Miss Harriet, she's... I told you about that tall lady who lives right here on Railroad Street. You know, she, she give she give piano lessons. Yeah, you remember her? Who are you talking to? Nobody. I can hear you yakking all the way in the kitchen. I was just playing. Well, you ought to start playing a little softer, buddy. I can't hear myself think. That's U.S. He's my best friend. And He's usually real nice, but he's just got a lot on his mind right now, so he don't mean nothing. B-flat has the ability to cut right to the chase at the heart of the matter uh, without, without insulting anybody else. And so it, it, is a, it is that gentleness, it is that innocence that, that creates that character. And what we had to do in the film is to find a way to accomplish that narration and that's where the character of Harry Truman came in, so that so that we could duplicate the process in the play. Um, B flat narrates and talks straight to the audience, and you can't really break that fourth wall as well in film as you can on the stage. So, in order to accomplish that, we added the, the character of Harry Truman and created him narrating his own letters. Well, I think that was a wonderful addition, and I I liked the way. The narration leads into dissolves to the White House. Yes, ma'am. And a favorite line, if you will permit me to include this, with a spoiler alert, when Harry Truman gets on the phone to ask what kinky means, and yes, ma'am. he's told, ask J. Edgar, I thought that was <laughs> priceless. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's funny how, how in, in the audiences, you, you just about have to be 30 years old or, or older to get that joke. But yes, absolutely. That's a great line. The film addresses several divisive issues, foremost among them, the plague of racism, 
especially in the South during the era of Jim Crow when the movie is set. We see it in the behavior of townsfolk toward black people in the film. E. Roger Mitchell, would you talk about some of the ways in which that is demonstrated, some examples from the screenplay? I consider, well, in what I've known and learned in history that as far as when we address uh, race and color in these United States of America, a lot of times in the onset, we know we, we call the dilemma, you know, the racism aspect of it. And it comes to the forefront pretty much all the time, to say the least. However, in this particular film and in many, many other stories through history, there's something called a village and color didn't exist as much as it did in other places. And say, for instance, where we are in our town, people treat each other like human beings. At least people are trying a little bit harder to do so versus some other places when in, in history where it was a lot more overt. I think when I say village, I mean a friend is a friend. It doesn't matter who they are or where they're from or what they look like. And that's what drew me to this, uh, this project, the humanistic aspect and that transcends and crosses all lines of anything that's visual because we're talking about human beings and spirit. And so that's what I feel happens in Second Samuel when it comes to, you know, to my character. It's like, hey, we've been here. We've grown up together. We know each other. Our parents know each other. And that's what the village means to me. And that transcends anything that's visual. Yeah, but. much of the interaction among the townspeople, black and white, is not only civil, it's friendly. You don't think that was extraordinary for 1949? Actually, Lois, I mean, to say absolutely yes, extraordinary, but at the same time, what Second Samuel is doing, uh, amongst other projects we've seen over history, it illuminates the fact that it actually was even more common and more places than people might know that folks treat each other that way, in a, you know, kind way, humanistic way. So, yes. Miss Lois, there is also a, uh, a scene with E. Roger that is so nuanced that you almost miss it. There, there's a, a sweet scene, and it's slightly comical, where one of the, the larger racists, played by Clay Chapel kindly suggests that maybe E. Rogers' character shouldn't attend the, the funeral because he's colored. And be flat in that sweet innocence, just say, that won't bother nobody. He's always been that color. <laughs> and this bar full of Caucasian men laugh at that line. And if you look at E. Rogers' face in that, he grins and, and nods and kind of looks, but he's got this sideways glance about, that's not really funny. I mean, it's true, but it's not really funny. And nobody else could, these two actors, Hamilton Sage played B-flat with, with just almost perfection. And these two actors, that showed relationship and character and such nuance that could be a funny line and a, just a critical line to showing the racism that did exist at the time. Mm. Well, E. Roger, your character, U.S. Simpson, whom I'm, presuming was named for Ulysses S. Grant, is noble. Um, would you talk about embodying that kindness and ability to rise above the nastiness, some of the nastiness that surrounds him? Mm -hmm. Quite frankly, as far as like the craft is concerned, quote-unquote acting is concerned, um, I like to give a, a shout out to my my late father, Edgar Mitchell, who's been gone for a long time now, God bless him. But when I think about Ulysses, I thought about my father and how his spirit, just a really, really kind man, very modest, very practical, hardworking folks, him and my mom both, and I miss them obviously every day. But there was something that was just very calm and, and kind about him. And I kind of modeled Ulysses after my dad, very soft-spoken, didn't say a whole lot, not a whole lot of education per se, but a whole lot of common sense. And so I kind of took the lead from my dad, you know, my mom and, and the upbringing that they gave me. I mean, also, Lois, it starts on the page 
for me, as far as quote unquote, the acting, the craft is concerned, I think the literature, the words on the page, that is the breath, in my opinion, of the character. So what is on the page, thanks Wayne, and thanks to, you know, obviously the play that's been, been around forever, it, it, you know, that informs me. And then the time, you know, the period, and we know the set of circumstances. So I just kind of dug into my own family and you know, I looked at my dad. He would have carried himself in that way. And he, in fact, your character, U.S. Simpson, is a father figure to be flat, whose own father had passed away. Yeah. Bethany, you portray Jimmy Deanne, a former beauty queen. <laughs> Not surprising you could play the role of a beauty queen. <laughs> but this one knows all the town's gossip. <laughs> Was there anyone you were channeling when you prepared for this role? <laughs> I feel like I grew up with with a few Jimmy Deans, although that I know of, none of them were quite that mean. Um, <laughs> but certainly, you know, if you grow up in any sort of town, city situation, you know, you know people who just know everybody's business and know everything that's going on and maybe like maybe add a little to it too so definitely a conglomeration of people I knew I love it when you utter the line later in the film about sending someone back up north like to Atlanta I thought okay Atlanta's up there with New York and and I I think that probably was and maybe still is a perception of Atlanta as the urban center that is not oh, necessarily yeah. the same as the rest of Georgia or the uh, South. For sure. I, I grew up in a smallish town in North Carolina, and I was afraid of Atlanta. Like, that's the big city. Well, you have conquered it. <laughs> I love it now. <laughs> Good. Why do you think Jimmy Deanne is shattered to find out the big secret in the movie? Shattered is a really good word for it. I think it's the thing of, of when you see your world a certain way and when she finds out that her world is not the way that she thought it was. Yeah, it's the image of shattering is, is perfect because your world suddenly explodes a little bit it's not what you thought it was and you also have no control over that i'm sure we've all been in experiences like that to a degree <laughs> take a global pandemic for instance where you know that afterwards your the world is not going to be the same your world is not going to be the same and you know it takes a minute to adjust and jimmy dan does not do that very uh, graciously <laughs> she does not know how to adjust with any sort of grace for other people by any means. Again, the wisdom of the character of B. Flat, the young man who adored Miss Gertrude. If U.S. Simpson was his father figure, she was his mother figure. Mm -hmm. And he, he is devastated. He's bereft at her passing. But then added to that is anger at the way the town responds when they find out Miss Gertrude's secret. He says, yesterday you loved her. Now you can't stand to have her buried here. Why is it so difficult for the town of Second Samuel to see their own hypocrisy? Do you think it's the time period? I would say each time period most likely has its own set of hypocrisies. Certain groups of people have their set of hypocrisies that history will later decide, you know. And I think for, for this town, it's not clear. If you just believe that something is wrong so strongly without any real reasoning except that it's actually a little scary to you 
it's very hard to see in a moment that it it actually doesn't really make any sense <laughs> that the thing you're afraid of is nothing to be afraid of especially when you don't even see it as fear you know when you see it as just some sort of moral line that that's been invented somewhere along the way um, just the way things are it's just right. the way things are right and i i think like you said like I, <laughs> it is that time period it, that's the way things are but i think it's pretty apparent we all have our own hypocrisies that come to light that it takes a minute we'll be back with more of my conversation about the new film second samuel you're listening to 90.1 wabe atlanta the field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly and richmond graduate university can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice programs are offered in atlanta chattanooga and online apply today at richmond.edu that's r-i-c-h-m-o-n-t dot e-d-u you love free and at Ameris bank so do we that's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's get back to more of my conversation about the film Second Samuel. I've been speaking with the actors Bethany Ann Lind and E. Roger Mitchell, along with director Wayne Patterson. Wayne's father was a minister and worked for the Alabama Southern Baptist Convention. He acknowledged that his father's beliefs influenced his attraction to making this film. Part of what I was drawn to was when my father came to see the play when I directed it, he pointed out that this is the story of the Good Samaritan. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, didn't pick the Samaritan at random. He picked the one person that every Pharisee out there would absolutely condemn and told them, that's your neighbor. That's who you're supposed to, to treat well. That's who you're supposed to treat like you love yourself. And my father is the one who pointed that out. Uh, my, my father, like E. Rogers, is... Well, my father was a doctorate in education from uh, Southwestern Seminary and one of the most intelligent men and the most kindest and wisest men I've ever known in my life. And without his take on Southern Baptist Protestantism, I'm not sure I would have be the same person. And, and it's not the standard Southern Baptist that you see on the news or anything like that. He had a very loving spirit, and he thought that our first command was to love our neighbors as ourselves. And ultimately, that is the message of this film. In fact, you have a hashtag, don't you? Yes, ma'am. Uh, hashtag love your neighbor. And U.S. says this a number of times throughout the film. Why is this ideology so resonant now? Right now is when we are forgetting that the most, especially when we're so isolated and away from each other because of this pandemic that Bethany was mentioning. Right now is when we're generating the most fear and need to be reminded the most of, of the connections that we have to each of these individuals. My favorite line of E. Rogers is, Mr. Moselle, you going to be a Pharisee or you going to love your neighbor? Mm -hmm. uh, Roger, what do you think about that? Well, I think, quite frankly, like as piggybacking off of a couple of things, uh, like Bethany was talking about the hypocrisies that are sometimes built in that it may not even exist. The fact that like the Samaritan, these are the things that I believe personally should be happening every day between human beings. So to me, I think what Second Samuel, the reminder, the mirror that we're holding up to life is people have to work harder technically to not be this way. It's harder to be upset than actually be okay. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's easier to say hello. It doesn't take a whole lot of work, but like 
people have these built in, once again, quote unquote, hypocrisies of, of sorts. That takes work to uphold. I was just going to add, what we hope that Second Samuel does is, is hold a mirror up, especially to those, to those of us in the South who, who have these ingrained prejudices and ingrained ideas, and, and slowly wipe the fog off that mirror and let us see ourselves the way we really are. Our small prejudices, our small ingrained thought patterns that, that are just not the way it should be. I hope that's what Second Samuel accomplishes. Mm. I must compliment the music. And I wondered about the music director. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of country or bluegrass, but there was something very special about this soundtrack. And it felt very blues-inflected. Travis Perry was our music director, and Travis has worked very closely with several artists throughout the Southeast. Travis invented the chord buddy. I don't know if you've ever seen that little piece of plastic clip on the end of your guitar to, to uh, learn how to play guitar, but uh, that's where he got his background, and, and he has a very bluesy style. And so I think that came out. Uh, we worked very closely on that music and selecting the pieces. And then we brought T. Graham Brown on board to uh, record the ending song. And T. Graham was hilarious. Mm -hmm. Well, Bethany, your voice is gorgeous. Thank you. It's I... so fun when I get to sing every now and then. And tried we're off made to wonder. Why it should be thus all the day long While there are others living about us Never molested the wind the wrong Did it beautifully. Thank you. I think you touched upon this, Wayne, but I will ask, why is now an especially good time to release this film in relation to our current reckoning and specifically in the South? You know, we need a gentle reminder to reopen a discussion about who our neighbor is, about how we treat each other. And it doesn't matter what color, what gender, what religious preference or sexual preference. It, it does not matter, those things. At the very end of the movie, in fact, when after you've learned the secrets, and one of the things that gets said is it was about how she treated people. It was about how she took care of people. And ultimately, that's what's going to overcome any kind of prejudice. Loving each other is what's going to overcome. We're, we're not going to get the response we needed. You know, this is the age where if we don't like what somebody says, we just block them. And, and all of a sudden on social media, that just simply limits the ideas that we have access to. Why do that? Why block somebody just because they have a slightly different opinion than you do? I'd rather hear what they have to say. I'd rather them hear what I have to say. And let's, let's have a discussion. Let's have a debate if that's necessary. But it doesn't have to descend into argument. And it doesn't have to descend into to anger. Um, we can calmly figure things out. That's what America's been doing for 200 years, is, is moving in the right directions because we have dialogue, because we have a caring uh, attitude toward our neighbor. That's the secret to it. And that's what Second Samuel tries to do is repoint out that, that we, we just have to treat each other like neighbors. Wayne Patterson, director of the new film Second Samuel. He was joined by actors Bethany Ann Lind and E. Roger Mitchell. The film can be found on Amazon Prime, Vimeo, and several other streaming platforms. There will be more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. During an 
earlier time of this pandemic, the Plaza Theater brought back drive-in movies. In May, the executive director, Christopher Escobar, joined me to discuss this creative solution for remaining socially distant and safe with a fun movie theater experience. We had been looking at doing it ever since the order from the city came down, but before the shelter-in-place effect uh, had gone had gone in. And then once that happened, then we kind of had stalled mid-plans and had to put things on hold. And so once the, the governor's orders came and there was this big rush and question of, you know, were we going to reopen our doors? While we weren't going to do that, we did want to find a way that we could continue to serve the community and keep our staff safe and keep our, our customers safe. And so we thought, man, the, the drive-in seems like a really, really great option. And it's also kind of reinvigorated the property there because now some of the restaurants are, are, are reopening for carryout service and some of them are even doing service, you know, straight to people's cars during the movie, which is really awesome. But now really though, because we're doing it at the Plaza, which is one of the sites for the Atlanta Film Festival. When I was on your show last, back in March, you posted kind of an update of what was happening with with the Plaza and with Dad's Garage. And so in some ways the credit goes to you all because that is actually the site of our second drive-in location at Dad's Garage. Well, we are really thrilled to play the role of matchmaker with two great Atlanta arts and cultural organizations. When you said it, it's kind of reinvigorated the property. I should add the property you mean is the shopping center on Ponce de Leon at North Highland Avenue. Yeah, it's been normally known as the as the Briarcliff Plaza. They refer to it now as Plaza on Ponce. But um, yeah, it's where Southern Bell is, Insomnia Cookies, The Majestic. What determined your choice of movies for this series? It was the same thing that determined that opening our doors like normal was not the right time. And that was our credible community. Uh, we had some survey results that came in. We had over 600 people participating in the survey and and it indicated some of the top choices that we're going to be doing. Now, how are you ensuring that people attending these screenings will remain safe? So our drive-ins, be it at the plaza or the or the dad's garage locations, are completely contact-free, which is a little bit different than, than a drive-in. And what I mean by that is we've thought through every kind of component, from the ticketing, which is strictly online and in advance, and you pay sort of per person but in the car and there's a sliding scale where the more people that are in your car the less per person you're paying uh, we scan those tickets right through the windows so there's no contact ever and people can keep their windows up people can bring their own food and if uh, there's food available either the plaza concessions or nearby restaurants that food can be brought straight to their vehicle and then we're encouraging folks to use a restroom in advance but we do have restrooms on site but there's social distancing practice with those so if it's at the plaza, we have a distance queue line outside, and we only let one to each restroom at a time. And so that way you're never in, the, in a space with somebody else at the same time. And so we've kind of thought about all these components. And so not only does it look good and sound good and you get the audio over radio, but you get also a, an experience that allows you to experience it with others and with those you're sheltering in place with in the car, but without compromising your safety. How does that audio over radio work? So it, there's a there's a low power ultra hyper locally uh, FM transmitter um, that's really kind of just reaches the parking lot, and so folks just tune into the station that we provide uh, that day and they hear a full stereo feed of the audio from the movie. And the nice thing is cars are already inherently surround sound, so <laughs> and they have an incredible frequency range, and so it's an incredible way to listen to a movie when you're really literally immersed in the sound. Christopher Escobar is the executive director of the Atlanta Film Society and owner of the Plaza Theater on Ponce. Later this week, the Plaza will screen two films made in Georgia, Baby Driver and Selma, honoring the anniversary of the Voting Rights Act signed into law on August 6th. The Plaza will also continue its screenings of John Lewis' 
Good Trouble at the drive-ins and by way of their virtual cinema. True to its name, the Emory Global Health Institute plays a vital role on the world stage in developing and nurturing partnerships for research and scholarship. As part of its efforts to address the COVID-19 pandemic and in keeping with its 13-year history of bringing diverse disciplines together to tackle global health issues. The Emory Global Health Institute launched a COVID-19 children's ebook competition. The winning author and illustrator Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee join us now via Zoom, along with Pamela Redman, the Global Health Institute's Chief Operating Officer. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Great to have you. Now, Pam, what was the inspiration for creating the ebook competition? As you know, the Emory Global Health Institute's mission is to advance the knowledge of global health issues. And there really is no greater global health issue facing the world today than COVID-19 pandemic. We recognize that children must be finding this pandemic scary and confusing. And the director of our um, institute, Dr. Jeffrey Copeland, has three young grandchildren. So he was experiencing firsthand all the questions, the confusion, and you know what's really going on in the world. Discussing it in a staff meeting one day, we decided a book would be a great way to, to help children better understand what's happening and how they can play a role in the pandemic. So Dr. Copeland actually continued his role as researcher and grandfather in incorporating his grandchildren into this process of the ebook competition. What were some of the guidelines creators had to follow? To start with, we announced the book as a competition rather than to seek out a children's book author. So the competition was open to the general public. Anyone could submit a book. We announced the competition and the authors only had two short weeks to submit a book. We realized what a huge challenge that might be for the authors and illustrators. And to be honest, Lois, we weren't sure if we would end up with five books or a hundred books when we released the competition news. The book was to be written for six to nine-year-old children. We welcomed picture books, we welcomed easy readers, and we welcomed age-appropriate chapter books to the competition. And in fact, how many submissions were there? We were shocked and, and incredibly pleased to receive 256 children's book submissions. And the authors were from all walks of life. We had professional writers, we had teachers, healthcare providers, psychologists, parents, and students to submit books to our competition. Who were the judges? We knew from the get-go that we were, were not the best judges for this book. We're, we're public health professionals, um, healthcare providers at the Emory Global Health Institute. And we knew that we needed to find judges that were better qualified than us to also help us. So we engaged 60 judges. Uh, these included physicians and pediatricians specifically, nurses, teachers, child psychologists, public health professionals, parents, and sometimes the judges' children um, even weighed in on their favorite books. Oh, that is important to include, to have a child's perspective. Carrie and Beth, how did you decide to write this children's book together? I guess I'll start. This is Beth. I found out about the contest uh, from a friend who lives in Atlanta. And I just saw it. And at the time, I was really feeling like 
there are so many people on the front lines doing things to help. And I wanted to do something to help. So I was like, well, I'm a writer, you know, maybe this is a way I can help. I can, I can simplify the issues and, and also sort of speak with a hopeful voice. So I just did a short amount of research and wrote up the draft, which is very, very similar to the final draft, just in one afternoon. And then I kind of sat on it for a couple of days and called Carrie, who is my friend and a great illustrator. I just thought her style would be perfect for it. And I told her about the contest. And Carrie, you want to take over on your perspective? Yeah, um, she called sort of out of the blue. We talk quite a lot about different projects, and I've always loved her books and her, her voice. And so she asked me about it, and I actually was in the middle of moving. So I sort of blew her off at first. I was like, yeah, okay, that sounds great. I'll get back to you. And she was persistent as she is. And uh, I ended up reading the manuscript. I was sitting in my car, had just taken my mask off, had just gotten back from the grocery store, feeling sort of overwhelmed and overcome with the situation. And, um, and I read the manuscript and I just was so simple and so poignant and beautiful. And I just thought, okay, I have to try this. So we just uh, sort of decided not necessarily how this wouldn't work, but how it could work. And Beth was kind of my cheerleader through the whole thing. We just decided the process would be to do the quick sketches and get the ideas down and not worry so much about the process. I would imagine you'd take much longer. Yeah, it can take me up to about six months, honestly. But the beauty of this book, the simplicity of her words, it just spilled out of me. And with her encouragement, you know, well, the, the sketches are great. Let's just use the sketches. So it just kind of fell together. I also did two rounds of sketches. I do what's like a little thumbnail book dummy. And we worked through some of the problems, but we had it pretty quick. And um, then I just went right to color digitally, which is also a big help. And I normally do traditional watercolor. So it was just a wonderful culmination of our talents, I think. And it was just a joy to work with Beth on this book. And I don't know if I would have been able to make the deadline without her encouragement. Well, it's beautiful to read as well as to behold the, yes. the illustrations. And what struck me in reading it was how you point out to the children, how you impress upon your readers the important role they have in fighting the disease, that staying home, that their being at home is playing a very important role. And what a perspective that gives a child who may just feel bored and wonder, when will life return to what I knew it, that here you elevate their purpose just by being inside and being safe. Uh, the, the picture with the child holding the shield like a warrior against all of the COVID droplets surrounding her. I love how you describe that. that. That's a real compliment. Thank you. Would one of you read something uh, from the book? Oh, yeah. Here it is. COVID-19 Helpers by Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee. In the spring of 2020, something very unusual happened. Children around the world stopped going to school. They stopped playing in the parks. They stopped going to sports games and movie theaters and birthday parties. In the spring of 2020, it seemed like kids everywhere were doing nothing, but they weren't doing nothing. They were doing something very important. They were helping fight a brand new disease. COVID-19 appeared for the first time just a few months before. Many people were not harmed by the virus, but it made some people very sick. And because it was new, doctors did not have a cure. So people everywhere began to help. Healthcare workers helped sick people recover. Researchers helped to discover new medicines. 
Leaders helped by making new plans. Reporters helped share the news. Farmers and grocers helped by making sure there was healthy food to eat. Truck drivers helped by transporting supplies. Garbage collectors helped by keeping communities clean. When they went to the market, shoppers helped by wearing masks and staying six feet apart. And kids helped too, just by staying at home. It may seem like staying at home was doing nothing, but this was an important job. COVID-19 is spread by tiny droplets in the air. When more people get together, more droplets fill the air. When fewer people get together, fewer droplets fill the air. With fewer droplets in the air, fewer people may get sick. Soon, researchers will find a cure. Until they do, everyone is helping. Everyone, including kids like you. Oh, that is marvelous. Hey, I don't think you need to be between six and nine years old to get the best takeaway from that. Pam, I was hoping you would talk about the fact that there was a prize, a substantial prize, that the Emory Global Health Institute was able to offer for this. How was that funding provided? Yes, there was a substantial prize, and we were happy to award this and carry with $10,000 cash prize for, for this wonderful, wonderful book. Again, you know, when we talk about the, the mission of the Institute is to advance knowledge of global health issues, this is part of our mission. And so it's, our work is funded by Emory University. So we were, again, just delighted to be able to pivot during this time in history, you know, when we're all facing the COVID-19 virus and, and how to adapt and and what does it mean to everybody? And we were thrilled to be able to provide a book through Beth and Carrie to help children, not only around the U.S., but, you know, we plan on sharing this broadly with as many children as we possibly can. I understand there were some honorable mention prizes as well. There were. You know, with 256 books, there were just incredible, incredible options to pick from. And while Beth and Carrie's was the clear winner, there were many other good books. So we decided to award four honorable mentions and each of those authors received a thousand dollar award. We had Bray Bray Conquers the Coronavirus by actually Maxie Mormon and Johanna Whiteley. And this is a beautiful book about a little boy named Bray Bray who um, talks about what he can do to fight the virus. And the interesting story about Bray Bray is he is actually the nephew of the author, and he lives here in Atlanta, Georgia. It's a real little guy, just an adorable book. There was Together, Living Life During COVID-19 by Kevin Poplowski and Michael Rausch. And Michael is a local author. He lives here in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a physical therapist, and his wife is a physician. We're Going to Be Okay by Leanne Webb, Ebony J. Hilton, and Ashley Corin Webb was written by doctors who are working on the front lines who are also advocates for communities of color struggling with COVID-19 in their community. It's a lovely story about a little boy named Parker and his family and how they are staying well during the pandemic. And the final one is What Color is Today by Allison Stephan. And this is a really unique and beautifully illustrated book that tackles mental health issues children are facing during the pandemic crisis. And the author uses color um, to describe the different moods the children may be experiencing during the crisis, such as blue is scary, red is angry, pink is puzzled, gray is gloomy, and so on. So just a lot of delightful books were submitted for the competition. Carrie and Beth, have you received feedback on the book? Yes. Yeah. yeah, we've received some positive feedback. 
What kind of comments have you received? Just thanking us for giving a platform that parents can go to. I, some of my colleagues at work who are parents and are dealing with all of the homeschooling and all of the, the questions and just having a place that they can go to to get some answers in a format that a child can understand and be empowered with. And I work in um, a school district, so a lot of the teachers and librarians in my school district have been asking, how can I get this for my students? It's an ebook, so they can present it to their kids freely online during their online school. Also, we are working on getting a print version that would be able to be ordered by libraries, and that'll just take a little while. And Pam, as the sponsor, what kind of feedback have you received? The feedback has been overwhelming. I've gotten so many emails and text messages and social media posts um, just thanking EGHI for, for making this possible and providing this book as a tool for, for parents to use when they're trying to educate and talk to their children about the issues. Pam Redman is CEO of the Emory Global Health Institute. She was joined by Beth Bacon and Carrie Lee, winners of the children's ebook competition. Their children's book is called COVID 19 Helpers. You can find more information about their book and the honorable mentions on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 11 with an in-depth preview of the Alliance Theater's upcoming season. It's very imaginative. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Today's show and the City Lights archives are at wabe.org slash citylights. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.